This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for being with us for Talk Louisiana, signature support from the office of Mayor President Sharon Weston Broom. And the show originates from the Investar Tower in Baton Rouge. Your number, 877-217-5757. Emails, go to talk at talklouisiana.org. And the producer is Robin Dow. And the guest to begin, Troy Bear, the former state lawmaker who is an independent, former Democrat, but is leaning right when it comes to his politics as far as elected officials. He's bullish on Governor Jeff Landry and former President Donald John Trump. Mike Wolf is the man who uh, I have called, and I think I'm accurate, the godfather of the Libertarian Party in Louisiana. And he is a person who always, almost always votes Libertarian, but he does not like the former president of the United States and has voiced support for various Democrats recently on this show, including Sean Wilson in last year's governor's election. Again, your number 877-217-5757. And we will get to the state scene in short order, but President Biden endured a protest vote, and Donald Trump fended off Nikki Haley again, and both may face challenges with their party coalitions as they look toward November. This is after last night's vote in Michigan. Biden and Trump won the primary election there as the president and his predecessor hurtled toward a rematch in November. Mike Wolf. Uh, any surprise in Michigan last night? No, really not. The The most interesting aspect was the uncommitted vote in the Democratic primary. And what was the percentage? Was it 14 percent? It was a little you know, a little more than that, I believe. But you're, you're in the neighborhood, 14, 15 percent. But so. of course, it was more than the people, the, the margin between uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in, in 2016, as, as the Democrats concerned. Well, uh, Michigan, of course, has the highest percentage of Muslim voters, and uh, many are from, uh, their, their people are from the Middle Eastern part of the world, uh, Arab uh, descent, and as a result, uh, some of them are not pleased with the way the president has handled the crisis in Gaza. Uh, but it is a fact that 100,000 people in Michigan uh, voted uncommitted last night in the Democratic primary, and Joe Biden won that state by fewer than 20,000 votes, I believe, in 2020. So if 100,000 people stay on the sidelines in November, it could throw the state to Donald Trump. Yes, yes. Uh, so we'll, and it's a very important battleground state. Of course, it's interesting that the election will be determined in a half a dozen That's battlegrounds. Right. Well, yeah, it comes down to those six states, it appears. And uh, right now, if you uh, went on your electoral map, you you, and I'm talking about just about any of us, uh, could predict probably what's going to happen in 40 states, and we might even get to 44. A few of them, like North Carolina, could be an outlier, but it's unlikely North Carolina will probably go to Donald Trump. But the f- six states are Georgia, which narrow- went narrowly for Biden last time, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, all of which went narrowly for Joe Biden, and Arizona and Nevada, which all, both of them went for Biden in close races. So Biden, even though he won the overall vote in a landslide by more than 7 million votes, if he had lost any three of those six, he would have lost the election. And he's in the same boat this time. He has to win four of those six states. And right now, Donald Trump is leading in five of the six in polls that are taken right now. 
So does this mean that uh, Donald Trump is ready to return to the White House, Troy Bear? Well, good morning, Jim and Mike, and to your listeners. Uh, first of all, I want to say I'm glad that there's a new two-party system on your show. It's independents and libertarians. We don't have a Democrat or a Republican on your show. So, not today. And, and I really, not today. Uh, I really believe, you know, they could, both candidates could save us a lot of money, and Donald Trump could just challenge Joe Biden to a 10-yard dash and uh, get this race over with pretty quick. But uh, seriously, I, I well, think I, think, I think Bobby Kennedy would win that one by, he would win the 10-yard dash by a mile. Yeah, but as an age, I think you got to be over 75. It looks well, like that's but be you know Bobby Kennedy Jr. is 70 years old? And I would he have, is 70. He is 70, wow. and I would say he can bench press his weight. But that aside, uh, he's not likely to be the president <laughs> of the United States. It's going to be one of these guys. It's going to be Biden or Trump. Well, he certainly, he, he certainly, you know, Kennedy, it's a, it's a strange candidacy he has because I, you would think that the Democrats would have gave the Kennedy name a little bit more respect um, and, and looked towards him a lot more. But it's a, it shows you how things have changed over the years uh, when it comes to Democrats, because Kennedy's used to be the, the Democratic threshold, basically. But going back to your point, you know, let, let's take a look at, you know, what's happening as far as for the things you quoted. I, I agree with, with everything you said, Jim. But I'm going to make this prediction, like many have said, uh, I just don't see Biden being the nominee. I just cannot see ultimately at the convention that they're going to nominate Joe Biden. I mean, it, it, as the polls show more and more that Trump is going to smoke him like a Christmas ham, that I just don't think that the Democrats can, can stomach Trump. And I think that they go ahead and they sacrifice Biden and, and maybe go with uh, the California governor or, or, you know, maybe somebody else. He seems to be the, the natural one. But that's my prediction. I just can't see them running um, uh, Joe Biden. In fact, it's hard to say running and Joe Biden in the same sentence. Well, um, he's not the best candidate, but Trump's not the best candidate for the Republicans either. This is uh, analogous to John Bell Edwards and David Vitter. They both wanted each other in 2015. Edwards could not have beaten Scott Angel nor Jay Darden head up, and neither could Vitter. But they wanted each other, and the only person Biden can probably beat is Trump, and the only person Trump can probably beat, he might beat Harris, but I'm not even sure about that. He probably uh, has a shot against Joe Biden, but what's that old axiom that uh, possessions nine-tenths of the law? Well, Biden has the White House. <laughs> And I wouldn't count him out, and I think uh, he is probably going to be the Democratic standard bearer unless some health episode happens. And it, uh, he moves slow, and sometimes he talks slow, but I don't think he's near the end. Uh, unlike Nikki Haley, I think he's probably got several years of life left. But the quality of life and whether it's capable at his age to lead the country and the world is uh, something that is a legitimate concern. And Trump has his own issues. So, you know, we know he's wildly overweight. He's almost 78 years old. He doesn't handle stress well. And uh, he's seen better days, too. But that's what we have. And the combined age of the two on Election Day will be 160 years old. And in 1960, the combined age of Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon was 90 years old. So there we are. 877-217-5757 for Troy A. Bear and Mike Wolf on Talk Louisiana. Doug on Old Hammond. Doug, good morning. You're on Talk Louisiana. Good morning, Jim. Just a couple of observations uh, to respond to some of the confusion we were hearing. But uh, 
You know, President Biden on his worst day is a far better president than Donald Trump was on his best day. And President Biden is old, but uh, Donald Trump is crazy and evil. So given that choice, I hope a lot of Americans will look at what's at stake. And frankly, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. um, has gotten a lot of people killed through his crackpot anti-vax opinions. So uh, I don't think there's going to be widespread support for him either. Well, he could be the Ralph Nader of 2024, though. He he will get votes, and polls have shown right now, right now, he would get more than 10% of the votes. His name is Kennedy. And, and Troy, you said uh, the Democrats are not for him. Well, his own family is not for him. Uh, he is, uh, he's alienated the other Kennedys. His politics are different, and... Uh, he is a, he is an individual. I like that. He's got a mind of his own. But uh, if his name were not Kennedy, I doubt that we would be taking him as seriously as we do. And uh, another listener notes that another Kennedy went to the other side, and that was John Neely Kennedy, who was a liberal Democrat and became uh, the staunchest of Republicans. What the heck happened to John Neely Kennedy, Troy Abair? Well, I think he, he understands math, and he saw the polling in Louisiana. Um, but I do want to mention this about, about your caller, uh, you know, to build on that. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Out of 350 million people in America, we have one candidate with questionable mental health and one candidate with questionable physical health. Um, and then as far as for uh, John Kennedy, I mean, you know, Kennedy is an, is an interesting political that he, he, he used the recipe of beating up Bobby Jindal, um, and the media funded his campaign basically by every time Bobby Jindal did something, he literally was called by the press and he said Bobby was was wrong. And so, um, he, you know, Kennedy, you have to give it to him. He's he's very very astute. He tries to play the the old country boy uh, with his with his country sayings. Although he, I think he's a, a Ivy League graduate, and uh, I don't know if he's he's ever driven in the country, but. He certainly has a way of adapting, and you have to give him credit for that. Well, he is a smart man, but he's not an Ivy Leaguer. He went to Vanderbilt in Virginia, and he's not a Rhodes Scholar, even though he went to Oxford, and he is an incessant money raiser. I have a a message from him, uh, I think this was yesterday. He said, I wish I was kidding, but right now my fundraising is as slow as molasses in January. If a trip around the world cost a dollar, I couldn't get to the Oklahoma line. Can you help me? This really is no joke. And folks, I wish that fundraising was our biggest problem, but I feel like conservatives are running low on spirit. I'm talking about standing up and fighting for what we believe in. Back after this. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. Troy A. Bear, Independent, Mike Wolf, Libertarian, and they're assessing the world at large, both nationally and locally and of course, there are international happenings, which also will affect the outcome of the election this November in the United States. And uh, the other day, I got a call from Zach, uh, one of our favorites, uh, who chided me for not being harder on Trump. Well, it wouldn't matter how hard I was on Donald Trump. Donald Trump, folks, will carry Louisiana. And he not only will carry Louisiana, he will win by a landslide in our state. And I could talk all day, all night, and it's not going to change that. That's just the nature of the beast, and that's another reason why we need to get rid of the Electoral College, because the candidates will totally ignore Louisiana. They'll ignore California. They'll ignore Illinois. They'll ignore New York. They'll ignore Texas. 
They're only there to raise funds. And uh, the old days, it was a rite of passage for presidential candidates to come to New Orleans. Remember Michael Dukakis in the November 1988 election? He knew he wasn't going to win Louisiana, but he still came to New Orleans. He had John Bro at his side at UNO October 21st, 1988, two weeks before the election, actually a week and a half. He was uh, on the stage at UNO. That never happens because now we know the Republican will carry Louisiana and carry every other state in the SEC with the possible exception of Georgia. And amid this, we have a crisis in Washington that could uh, erupt in the next few days. Democratic and Republican congressional leaders struck an optimistic tone, writes the Wall Street Journal, that they would avert a government shutdown this weekend after a White House meeting in which lawmakers also stepped up pressure on House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, to allow a long-stalled vote on Ukraine aid to go forward. Johnson was expected to put forward legislation in the coming days that would keep the government open, but details remain uncertain. Congress has until Saturday at 12.01 a.m. to fund the Departments of Veterans Affairs, Transportation, Agriculture, Energy, and several other agencies that have been operating on temporary extensions since last September. The funding for the rest of the federal government expires March 8th. So that's where we are. Mike Wolf, will cooler heads prevail, or are we headed for a government shutdown? I think they'll make a deal. They have been doing it in the past, and it looks like that's what they're going to do. They'll do something to avoid the shutdown, which means they're going to be Democrats and Republicans. It'll be a bipartisan bill. Mike Wolf was a bomb thrower. Excuse me, Mike Wolf. <laughs> Mike Johnson was a bomb thrower when he was uh, a backbencher in the U.S. House. Now he's got a position of authority, Troy A. Bear. It's amazing what that will do as far as making somebody more pragmatic, but uh, in his heart of hearts, uh, will he bend enough to make this happen? Well, you know, there's a big difference between throwing rocks and catching rocks, and a lot of people who have risen to the position of power by throwing them ends up, you know, catches, catching them or trying to catch them, and if they don't, they'll get hit in the head with them. And so what I think you see is is that <clears> – <throat> You know, from a position of leadership where Mike Johnson is now, um, you still have to run the country. The problem is, though, uh, I think what you have is, is that what a what a foolish, pathetic game they continue to play with the American taxpayers about shutting down the government. And this happens every year or six months or whatever, and it's just a game they play. And the Republicans end up rolling over, and enough of them side with the Democrats, and we have, you know, business as usual. And I think that's what the American – if you want to know why people love Donald Trump, they don't really love Trump. They just can't stand the liberalism that we have in the country. And I think that this, this government shutdown fiasco is an example of that. We, we, we fighting over just trying to keep the doors open. I mean, really, isn't America better than that? Well, we only fight about that when a Democrat's in the White House. Uh, you know, Trump raised the debt ceiling many times when he was president, and it wasn't an issue then. It is now. And, and I, would, I would hazard to say that it should have been an issue under Trump, but it makes the Republicans look hypocritical when they only try to nail Democratic presidents, as they did with Obama and Clinton and now Joe Biden. Dan downtown. Dan, you're on with Troy and Mike. Hi, Dan. Hi, uh, yeah. Yeah, as to what happened to Senator John Neely Kennedy, would you agree that he is an unprincipled politician, more interested in which way the wind is blowing and engaging in corn pone commentary 
than promoting legislation to help form a more perfect union. Dan, I gather you're not a supporter of the uh, junior senator of the great state of Louisiana. That's true. Okay. Well, John Kennedy is very principled when it comes to John Kennedy, uh, and he's doing a good job. Uh, and it's seven, he, when he goes for re-election, he'll be 77 years old, and that's in 2028. So we're four years out, and he's sending a plea for funds like he's on his last leg, uh, he can raise funds, and at 77, he's obviously planning on running again. Uh, as Mark Shields used to say, the only thing that gets these senators out is either the ballot box or the pine box. Uh, Troy Bear looks like Senator Kennedy wants to be there for a long, long time. Well, given today's political climate, unless it changes, he's going to have that. I mean, he'll pretty much be able to stay there until the pine box comes. And uh, But as far as him being principled, I think he's very principled. Now, his principles have changed through the years, but once he picks one, I think he is very principled, and he's very focused on what he does. Um, I think he also has a situation where, you know, in today's 24-hour news cycle, you know, he's a favorite on, on some of these news shows and stuff because, you know, he comes across very folksy, as I said. And I think even though people don't know he drives a Mercedes – he seems like he drives a pickup truck. He does drive a and Mercedes. He, a Mercedes. Well, he did. He did. I, I don't know if uh, if he's still driving it. Maybe he's traded it in. But I know this is that he he comes across and he relates to people. And I think today that's very important. Mm-hmm. And I think you well. know Senator Kennedy has done a good job of I think relating with the working <laughs> people. And I think that's been a that's been a strong suit of his. Well, listener says that if he's driving a Mercedes, he's probably doing it with sunglasses, but he does fly Southwest. So, um, and Southwest <laughs> does not have a first class. So, uh, man of the people, John Neely Kennedy, the pride of Centerville, Mississippi. Craig in Natchitoches. Craig, good morning. Yeah, uh, Jim, good morning to your guest there. When you mentioned the six states that were decided, you forgot a couple other things. Nebraska's second congressional district. In, in Maine's Maine. pop, Maine. popular vote, that, well, that's a total of three. That, as close as this thing could be, those could very well be a factor. You're right. They, in a very close race, it could be a definite factor. Al Gore, when he lost in 2020, and I put lost in quotation marks, he uh, if he had carried any other state, any other state, he would have won. He was that close, but he lost. Uh, Mike Wolf, uh, I know you hate the horse race aspect to this, but yet you, I don't. I don't know of anybody who follows it more closely than you. It's like a, a, tra- a train wreck or a car wreck. You can't help but watch. Yeah, you know. Speaking about Kennedy, well, let's give him credit and uh, Senator Cassidy for supporting the Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. The no day. doubt that was a brave vote, and it, they were in the minority in their party. Right, and I mean. International affairs are extremely important. The U.S. used to be the leader of the free world, and now we're running from our responsibilities and uh, uh, playing footsie with the Russians. God, these murderers, it's its just outrageous. Mike in Lafayette. Mike, you're on Talk Louisiana. Yes, well, I'd just like to say about our favorite senator from Louisiana, that, that's Mr. Folksy, is that uh, he was trained at, uh, at Oxford University, and what he speaks about is just the persona that he projects. It's not his authentic self. 
Well, Oxford has produced some uh, remarkable people, uh, including Bill Clinton and David Vitter and Bobby Jindal. And by the way, they were all Rhodes Scholars. John Kennedy was not a Rhodes Scholar. And I, I, it kind of galls me when I hear that. Uh, it's like people who pretend to be college graduates, and they're not. He uh, does not shy away from being identified as a Rhodes Scholar, but he's not. But, but Troy, you said it. He's a smart guy. And he knows this folksy act gets him a lot of FaceTime on Fox. And that's pretty good for John Kennedy. That's uh, My friend Neil Gladner said the most dangerous place in America is to be between John Kennedy and a television camera. <laughs> well, let me say this, though, Jim. You're talking about this Ivy League and, and Oxford graduate and whether he is or not. When, you, when you're somebody like me who went to a USL and is a raging Cajun, any college out of state is considered Ivy League or Oxford. So I'm not even really sure what that means, but what it means is he didn't go to, to USL or McNeese. Well, hold that thought. USL produced both Sean Wilson and Jeff Landry, and we'll talk more. This is Jim Inkster, and thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. And we, as usual, get uh, more questions about national politics than local. And uh, a listener asked about a story that's been circulating uh, through the last few days about uh, this um, bill by uh, a lawmaker, Mr. Bayham, to limit the terms of the governor to two, meaning a guy like John Bell Edwards would not come back and be able to run and seek a third term. Same is true of the presidency of the United States. But if you lose a race, as Donald Trump did, you can run three times in a row. And he stands to be the first candidate to get... uh, the nomination of his party in three straight presidential elections, three straight since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Trump, by the way, is the only candidate in American history. Um, Well, I'll take that back. John Quincy Adams also lost the overall vote twice. He's the only other president to lose the overall vote twice. And Trump stands, even if he were to win, I would uh, predict that he will lose the overall vote again to Joe Biden. But it's settled in the Electoral College. So it'll be 0 for 3 in the actual vote and perhaps be 2 and 1 in the Electoral College. And John Bell Edwards uh, is probably weighing a possible run in 2027. Troy A. Bear, it looks like they're going to try to stop him with a law. What do you make of that? Well, I'll offer a better solution than that. I say we just give the governor one six-year term. And because the problems that you have, if you go down in history, this is what happens, Jim, with two-term governors. They spend their first term raising money and doing favors to get reelected for the second term. And then after the, when they get in the second term, they're lame duck and can't pass anything. So let's give them a six, one six-year term, go take care of the people's business, you move up or you move out. The problem we have is, is and it's like almost all of these offices, we talked about Kennedy raising money, is they get in there and they spend all of their time raising money to get reelected. And I always said this, look, go to your office and vote because you were elected, not to get reelected. All right. Well, but Kennedy Kennedy does have a six-year term, but he also knows Yeah, but that he has more than one. That's right. And that's right. No term limits. No term limits for U.S. Senate. Kennedy could be 100 years old, still be getting elected like Strom Thurmond. Maybe we're going to see the next Strom Thurmond. But he can raise money and give it to other candidates, which gives him power and perhaps helps him get the bills passed that are advantageous to his state. So it is a it is a chess game, both in Washington and in Baton Rouge. Uh, uh, Kevin in North Baton Rouge. Kevin, you're on with Troy and Mike. Hi, Kevin. 
Yes, I want to know why did they uh why we don't talk about what's going on. All right, turn your radio down, please. All right, that's that's enough of Kevin. Uh, James and Metairie. Hello, James. Good morning. Hi, Jim. Good morning, and hello to your guests. Mr. Abear, I think I'm quoting you accurately. You said people are supporting Donald Trump because they're tired of all this liberalism. Let me. I, the saying goes like this. People hate government until one thing happens. They turn 65. It was liberal initiatives that gave us Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food safety laws, workplace safety laws. Liberalism has done great things for this country, sir. All right. Well, what about Mike Wolf's perception on this as a libertarian? If Democrats uh, expanded the government uh, to the point where it is uh, no longer working properly or to all those programs he mentioned, which came under Democratic leaders, uh, perhaps uh, have great merit with the American people. They do. And it's a a very active debate that's going to continue all of our lifetimes, uh, how much the government should handle the private needs of the population. And that's what social welfare programs are all about. Uh, In general, societies seem to run better the the less heavily weighted they are that way but and of course we're, we're better off with a certain degree of them so the question is how you cut the baby you know where how you divide the 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 values in question and and there has to be some of both that is some social welfare spending and some restraint you just it's got to be a middle way rebel and sherwood rebel you're on with mike and troy hi rebel Hi, thank you, Jim, and thank you to your guests. Um, actually, I, I like independence. I was an independent my entire life until 2016 when it became obvious that there was only one viable political party left. Um, but, sir, I would agree with you. Yeah, Biden is old, which, which means he has more experience, and I think it was that experience that helped him to pass more legislation than any other president, bipartisan legislation, than any other president of our lifetime. All right. Uh, Troy Bear, what about Biden's? Uh, he has passed bills, and he's done so with a narrow, narrow majority. Well, well, first of all, the call about the liberalism, this is what I, I, I say. You know, the guy who invented the wheelbarrow was a genius. The problem is, is after you load up the wheelbarrow so much and the tire is flat and you flip it, it's no longer useful to people. Now, the, the next thing is, and that's where we are today, with, with the, the, recent, the, the, the latest call I asked about is this, is I, I think – when you talk about Biden passing stuff, you want to know the only reason why Biden can pass anything? It's just a real simple mathematical equation in Washington, D.C. The Democrats stick together 100 percent, and then they peel enough Republicans to pass something. And the reason a Republican can't pass anything is because the Democrats stick together against them 100 percent, and the Republicans can't. Republicans have good politics. They just have poor leadership. All right, Patrick and Ennis Walda States. Patrick, please be brief. You're on with Mike and Troy. Yeah, I remember a liberal used to be for individual freedom, self-responsibility. It seems like liberals today are for big government. Is that it? Big social programs? Is that what makes a liberal? Because that doesn't seem like the definition of a liberal. Well, uh, Donald Trump uh, was a liberal for many years, and liberal also includes being liberal and being open to other cultures, other ideas, new ideas, not to be living in, uh, as many of the Supreme Court justices take pride in doing, the original intent, meaning that whatever uh, Alexander Hamilton was thinking when the Constitution was written was uh, 
what they should be thinking. Uh, we evolve as people. We've evolved as a country. We once uh, blessed slavery. Uh, I think b- changing over time is a good thing, Troy, but some people like Patrick would probably disagree with me. Well, yeah, you know, you know, talking about Trump and Jim, you and I have talked about this on your show before. You know, the Democrats missed such a good chance with Trump because if they'd have just sung it, sang his praise and built him up some, he'd have probably given him whatever they, they wanted. Um, but they, choose to, they chose to go against him. As far as for the liberalism, I think, you know, the call is right. I mean, you know, those things change. And I think liberalism means something different now and conservatives, conservatives means something different today. And now it's more about, it seems to be personalities. Like they say, the Republican Party is the Trump Party now. And I think a lot of people are following the Republican Party just because they love Trump. All right. I don't know whether that's good or bad. That's that's a good point. Is the Republican Party, Mike, a a conservative party any longer? This is the party which once was hawkish on foreign adversaries like Vladimir Putin. Um, And and now Trump is for tariffs. By the way, Biden has done anything about uh, Trump's moves on those tariffs either, but but he's done things that in the past would be heresy for Republicans, and yet uh, the Republican Party gives him its blessing. Well, of course, they've abandoned economic, they've abandoned economic conservatism totally, and uh, they, they've changed their ideology. But uh, the, the question of liberalism is, is a very ongoing debate. Uh, of course, uh, liberalism originally meant freedom. That means letting people make their own choices. It's self-government, essentially. That's what libertarianism, for example, is all about. But the reason we're needed is because the Republicans have left their heritage, and the Democrats have too. And they're all both moving toward various forms of authoritarianism. So it, it's, a, it's an active uh, field of battle on, on philosophical issues and uh, legal policy. And all right. Randy and Zachary, please be concise. Hello, Randy. Good morning. I want to ask your guests, what are the thoughts on the current special session uh, on crime? All right. I thought we'd get to that. And uh, normally that would be the highlight or dominate most of the discussion. But there is that. And uh, Jeff Landry, uh, Troy, we'll begin with you, has a different approach than his predecessor. Your thoughts about where we're going as far as the the philosophy of the current governor, which is to, quote, be tough on crime and lock them up and throw away the key. Well, let, let me say this. I, I agree with Mike 100 percent with his last comments, and thank God for a lot of libertarians today. Um, as far as for your point, I, you know, I think what you have is with this, this session going on, I mean, crime, not only in Louisiana, but in, across all of the country is so bad that it's, I think it's the number one thing on people's minds. Uh, the question is, is that whether or not the solutions that they've put forth is going to solve some of them. Um, I do believe this, though. I would throw this out there as far as for, for more prison time and all this debate. I think one thing you might have to do is, is maybe just make prisons a bad place to be again. Um, I always thought this idea would be pretty good. And I know they say we have a two-tier justice system in the country. Let's have a two-tier prison system. If somebody is given 10 years in the prison, they can either stay and watch TV and sit in the air condition or give them a choice for five years and they can sleep in a tent and work on the road picking up trash. And uh, that way you could save a lot of money and get them out of prison early. Okay, that's an outside-the-box idea. David in Atlanta. David, you're on with Mike and Troy. Hi, David. Um, 
liberalism also gave us civil rights legislation and fair housing. Uh, Mr. Abad, Donald Trump claims he did nothing wrong regarding his recent fraud judgment because he repaid the loans. If I drove drunk through a school zone at 80 miles an hour, didn't kill or injure anyone, I committed a crime. And if everybody used fraudulent documents to obtain bank loans, we'd have a major collapse of our banking system. We'd all be standing in uh, soup lines. All right. Troy, would you respond about the goodness of government? Is it more good than bad? Without government, will we have any of these programs which have helped a lot of people? Well, you, you know, you have the you have the age old situation to where what somebody owns is worth everything, what somebody else's own is worth nothing. Depends if you're buying or selling. The point is, is this: if you ever applied for a loan, if you go into the bank and you put on your finance report that you're worth ten million dollars, but the bank proves that you're only worth one million, then the bank is going to follow their own guidelines. They're not going to take what you think you're worth. All right. Mike, final word from you. Oh, Lord. Um, We just have to use our minds. We have to think seriously about public policy and look at the consequences of economic actions realistically. Well, thank you, Mike Wolf, and thank you, Troy Aber. Always a pleasure to visit with these two enlightened, astute gentlemen. And on deck is one of the top writers in America, Steve Berry, back with another Cotton Malone novel, The Atlas Maneuver, back after this. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for being with us for Talk Louisiana. And we turn the page and go to one of the top writers in our world, Steve Barry. He's been doing this for a couple of decades now, a lawyer by training who branched out and became an internationally best-selling author of 18 Cotton Malone novels, five standalone thrillers, and he has 26 million books in print. Translated into 41 languages, the man who calls the oldest city in America home, St. Augustine, Florida. Good morning to you, Steve. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. And by the way, uh, 2010 NPR study named The Templar Legacy one of the top 100 thrillers ever written. And that's one of the signature works of Steve Barry, who, uh, like a few other writers, began as a lawyer. And, and some would view that as an inconsistent uh, transition. But it's worked well for a few of you, hasn't it? Yeah, it's worked out good. It is for me. I, I didn't gravitate to write legal thrillers, though, because I adhere to the philosophy, do not write what you know, instead write what you love. If what you know and what you love are the same thing, great. But for me, it wasn't. Uh, I was a lawyer. I, I knew that. But I loved action, history, secrets, conspiracies. And so I gravitated to write those. And now here I am 24 books later and 18 Cotton Malone books later. And here we are still going. And uh, I like the fact I read that you credit the nuns who taught you in Catholic school with uh, propelling your career and the tenacity that is necessary to face rejection. And it took a while. I think you had 85 rejections before you got a contract, didn't you? I did. I went through 12 years from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word. I had five manuscripts, went to New York houses, rejected 85 times all total. I made it the 86th time, 12 years after I started. And the nuns taught me discipline. They also taught me to stick with something and not to quit. And they were, that's one thing they did instill in me uh, when I was in Catholic school. So I used that and I hung with it until one day Lady Luck gave me a break and the Random House bought the Templar, I mean, bought the uh, the Amber Room, and then it took off from there. 
And you've done it over and over with a familiar character, which is probably both good and bad because you're constantly looking for new ideas and Cotton Malone has been a constant. How did that concept, the concept of Cotton Malone, come about? I was in Copenhagen eating dinner at Café Nordon, which is right there on Highbro Plots, which is a big square in Copenhagen. It was a lovely evening. It was beautiful. And I was just, he popped in my head. He said he's going to be a retired Justice Department agent. He's going to live right here in Copenhagen. He's going to own an old bookshop right across there. He's going to get in trouble a whole bunch. And I wrote all that down on a napkin. I went back home and I wrote The Templar Legacy. And The Templar Legacy became my fourth published book and the book that changed everything for me. It still remains to this day my largest selling book. And, you know, 18 books later, Cotton is still going strong. Now, the the thing is, the reader should be put off by that. You don't have to read all 18 books. You don't have to read any books in order. You can actually skip around, read them however you want. So this one is a good one to start if you've never read Cotton before. And a question I've asked other writers, and I probably asked you when we talked uh, the first time around, but quite often uh, the character is somewhat like the writer, but if if the character is not, my, my dear friend, who's also a great writer, John Ed Bradley, says, after a while, you become the character. You start living the life of Cotton Malone. You're, you're kind of like a method actor. Does that happen? Yeah, he's, he's, he's a lot. He's me, because I used my personality when I created him. So he's very much a part of me. And Cassiopeia Vitt, his love interest is my wife, Elizabeth. So there's a there's a lot of us in both of those characters. Uh, when I created Cotton, I wasn't arrogant enough to think I was going to get to do him for 18 books, so I just used me as the model. I was hoping to do one, maybe two, you know, if we could do. And he, you know, he's just become kind of part of me. Now, he's changed a lot. He's not the same guy he was in 2006. There's been a, a progression with him. And in every book, I explore something new in his personality, something I've never explored before. The Atlas Maneuver, this book, explores regret because he deals, he comes face to face with something from his past, something he thought he would never have to face again, but he does. And there's, uh, there's some regret and there's some things that he's going to have to wrestle with. And the backdrop for the Atlas Maneuver is 1945. That's 10 years before you were born, of course, right at the close of World War II. And it takes on from there. But you not only uh, are writing about a character who had a different life than you, but at at a time in which uh, you and I were not around. Yeah, that's that's what makes it kind of fun because you learn about these things and you can kind of bring it to life and that 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 period I deal with Yamashita's gold which is a treasure that was hidden in the Philippines at the end of World War II. 175 underground vaults were were put there with just tons of gold and silver and other precious metals some of which was found by the American intelligence community after the war and used for some very interesting purposes. Uh people uh, we're not exactly sure what, and that's what made fun for me because I could do what I wanted to with that information. And that goal comes into play today with Bitcoin because this book is very heavy into Bitcoin. And the reader is going to get a full understanding of how Bitcoin works, what is it, and particularly the flaw in the Bitcoin system. There's a big giant flaw in it that the Bitcoiners don't like to talk a lot about, but this book exploits that to its maximum. We're hearing the voice of Steve Berry from St. Augustine, Florida. 
founding member of the International Thriller Writers, a group of more than 4,000 writers from around the world. He served three years as co-president, and he was a trial lawyer for 30 years, but he says he writes about what he loves more than what he knows, and Cotton Malone has been this towering fixture in his work. And a listener asks uh, about uh, something that uh, she did not know, that your wife is also a part of this, that there's a prominent character in honor of her. Yeah, Cassiopeia did. Yeah, that's her, basically her personalities in Cassiopeia. And there's actual dialogue that's occurred between me and her I've actually used in the novels. Uh, the only, only her and I would know that. But, uh, yeah, there's uh, the, the likes and fears, hopes and dreams, those kinds of things. A lot of that is very similar between us, yes. Does she help you write, or is this she, a solo oh, act? She does not... She does not help me write, but she is a very good editor, and so she is the first reader of the novel. So she reads it when I'm done, and she does an edit on the book. She owns her own publishing house, uh, 1001 Dark Nights, with two other uh, partners and uh, Blue Box Press, and they've had uh, they've had three number one national bestsellers, and she edits about 40 books a year. So she's very accomplished at it. So I'm fortunate to have a nice in-house editor <laughs> who can help me, who can help me out. What is it about the South that produces so many outstanding writers? I don't know about that. That's a good question. We do have a lot of them down here, but uh, I uh, I don't know the answer to that question. That's really good to say. Uh, we have a lot of stories to tell, and, and I know I do, and so you know we like to tell them, and that's what we do. And um, Like I said, I don't write about the law. Maybe one day, who knows? I won't say never, but I like action, history, secrets, conspiracies. That's the thing that I really enjoy. And you're now 68 years old, but uh, it sounds like yep. you're just getting started, Steve. Well, I hope so. I'd like to keep going for a while. I know Cotton's going to be around at least for another three years because I know what he's going to be doing for the next three years. So uh, I hope uh, he can keep going for a long time. And Luke Daniels, my secondary character in my novels, is coming out on June 11th with a second book for him, which is great. And uh, there'll be a third book for him in 2026. So we're, uh, we're rolling along. I hope it can, kind of keeps coming. When do you do your writing? I do in the morning. I'm a morning guy. Uh, I do. Uh, I like to work from around 7:30 to about 11 o'clock. Uh, I get that's my most productive time. When I was a lawyer, I would work during that time as well. Uh, you know, from around 6 to 9:30. So uh, that's my most productive time. Well, we thank you for joining us today, and keep going, my friend. One of the best of all time, Steve Barry, back again. Cotton Malone novel, The Atlas Maneuver. Appreciate you, sir. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And as we round the corner and head for home, it was on this date in 1983 that the most watched television program in the history of television occurred. It was MASH, the final episode. That's the theme from the movie. But the TV show was one of those rare commodities that exceeded the popularity of the movie, which was very good. The film was directed by Robert Altman, starred Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. But the television show with Alan Alda was one that was one for the ages. And 41 years ago, more people watched MASH than any program in TV history. And that remained a record for 27 years until the Saints beat the Colts in the Super Bowl in 2010. 
a 30-second commercial, which usually sold for $450,000, went way, way up, way, way up for the final episode of MASH. The final episode drew 106 million viewers. A total audience around the world of 122 million. And it surpassed the single episode ratings that had been set for the final Dallas episode, or actually the one who shot JR. But uh, Loretta Swit was with us last year and noted that when they had the cast party to watch the final episode, Alan Alda asked, where, why, why are the streets empty? And it was like, hey, dummy, they're home watching MASH. That was the way it was in Los Angeles and every other city. And uh, it was my first day on the job. It was a Monday at the Louisiana Radio Network 41 years ago. And every newscast began with the theme of MASH, a show like few others about the Korean War. And amazing that it had the staying power that it did, started in 1972 and went to 1983. That's it for today. Until tomorrow, for Robin Dow, I'm Jim Inkster. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned.